it's my delight and pleasure to be here this morning and also to open up the word with you um, and and explore to see what God wants to speak um, to you through me this morning. And um, I want to share a little bit of my story um, this week and in two weeks' time I'll share bits and pieces of my story so you can get to know me, know my backgrounds, know a little bit of the way that I tick. Um, so you might understand the way that I do things, the way uh, the things that I say, why I do the things that I do. Um, hopefully that'll give you a little bit of insight into me um, as as we do ministry together here. Um, but foremost, um, I I do want to proclaim that I am um, a believer in Jesus and I am a son of the Most High King. And we all are sons and daughters of the Most High King. Um, I'm imperfect. I'm broken. And I am in need of a saviour, but his name is Jesus. And it is his name and his ministry and his message and his gospel that I will preach and teach from here. And that's my promise to you that when I get up here that I will preach and I will teach and I will share Jesus from this platform. And uh, I hope that is something that will bless you. And I I pray that your hearts will be open to receive um, messages from from the Lord about Jesus. And, And... as, um, as Rick mentioned this morning, um, we're going to be um, starting a new series. That, um, I like to preach in series. I like to sort of keep a bit of a momentum going as we go from one point to the next as we go through. And the series that I've entitled is called The Game Changer, Jesus, The Game Changer. And um, it's going to be a little bit of a series going through the Gospel of John, and no better place to start than in John chapter 1. So um, I do invite you to open up your Bibles if you have them. I'll have some of the words up on the screen. Um, But I personally believe that something um, powerful happens when we hold the Word of God in our hands ourselves, in whatever platform, whatever variety that you have it, um, even if it's in a different language, that you read it for yourself, that it is your Bible, it is the words um, that you can read and have for yourself. Um, So have a look, um, open up the the Gospel of John uh, with me, and as we start this series, The Game Changer, and and this morning's title, I've entitled today's message, Become flesh, become flesh. So a question I have for you, are you a church, are you an audience, are you a congregation that talks back? This is important for me to know. Sometimes. Well, sometimes actually that sounds better than sometimes because you did actually answer back. Because I've been to churches that say, are you a church that answers back? And you go, that's a no. So maybe maybe some easy questions can help, can help things um, can get along. So, if you're ready for the word this morning, say amen. 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 All right, good. Like, you, you, can, you can hear me? It's all good? All right. So, we are going to have a look at John chapter 1. So, if you have John chapter 1 open, say game changer. Game changer. Very good. Very good. Um, so, just to um, set us up of our journey through um, um, bits and pieces of the book of John, um, I want to give you a little bit of insight for those of you who may not be familiar with Scripture. Um, to give you a little bit of background as well. So, John, um, this is one of the Gospels of John where the author is not actually made known in the book. In fact, calling it the Gospel of John is actually traditional belief. Strictly speaking, you're ready for to be radical here, strictly speaking, we actually don't know who wrote it. But very good educated guest says his name is John. Now, here's something you may not know. There are two Johns that it could be. And we all just assume it's John the Apostle, right? Do most of us believe it's John the Apostle, right? Yes? That's the easiest one to think of. But there's also someone else called John the Elder, who was in the early church, who was present, but he wasn't one of the 12. 
But tradition tells us um, that it probably was John the Apostle, one of the twelve, but he only identifies himself through a particular turn of phrase. Does anyone know what it is? The apostle, the one he loved. Is it the beloved apostle, the beloved disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved? And that is how he identifies himself. And in fact, um, he himself, towards the end of the book, describes why he wrote these things down. And there's a verse in John chapter 20, verse 31, that says this, but these things, but these are written, the things I've written down here are written, so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you have life by the power of His name. We often don't get into this much. We don't often talk about, and I love that we've sung about it this morning, we don't actually talk about there, there is power in the name that is Jesus. In His name there is power. When His name is used, even out loud, that is where the power of heaven, in part, comes to us. And it is in His name. And we say it at the end of prayers. And if you've been in church for a while, you say, Jesus, thank you for that, thank you for this, bless the food, blah, 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 blah. And how do we finish the prayer? In Jesus' name, amen. And if we've been in church a little bit, I don't want to say too long, but if we've been in church a while, it just comes out of our mouth automatically. It's almost claiming that promise that Jesus said, anything you pray for in my name, you will receive. So as a magic wand, we wave it at the end of our prayer to say, God, I want this, I want that, thank you for this, blah, blah, blah. And it's the magic wand at the end, in Jesus' name, amen. And it almost becomes a little bit automatic, can I say? Would that be true for some of us? We say, in Jesus' name at the end, and we just go like, that's the way that I was taught to pray. But we need to remember that even when we pray, that we are saying the name of the risen Son of God at the end of our prayer. And it means something. And it's important. And it's powerful. And let us not be too flippant as the way that we end our prayers even. Maybe just a small challenge for you this morning. So let's, let's assume for this morning that John the disciple or John the son of Zebedee wrote this book. And he claims to be an eyewitness to these accounts, an eyewitness to these accounts. And John actually stands apart from the other three Gospels. So for the scholars among us, does anyone know what the name that we group the other three Gospels together as? Anyone heard this before? You've, I might say the word and you go, oh yeah, I knew that. Synoptic Gospels. You've heard this before? So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three Gospels of the New Testament, um, are called the Synoptic Gospels. And then John stands apart. And John's actually quite different. It's written quite differently. In fact, the language that it uses is actually quite, it's almost street language. It's simple language. And when I was doing uh, studying seminary, it was also the easiest book of the Bible to translate because the Greek in it was very, very simple, but at the same time, powerful imagery, but yet simple language is used. In fact, they even say that this might have been the gospel for the common person, but also the gospel that both the Jews and the Gentiles could read and understand. We often understand that Matthew was pro, uh, predominantly written for Jews, but John, a bit of a combination of the two. Um, some interesting facts that you may or may know about the Gospel of John, um, that in the Gospel of John, there are no parables. Jesus does not teach in parables in the Gospel of John. Uh, there's no account of the Transfiguration, which is in the other ones. There's no account of the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is not in. Um, the foot washing part is, but it's only found there. 
but the Lord's Supper is in the other Gospels, but not here. Um, Jesus does not cast out any demons. There's no demon casting out in this. There's no temptation of Jesus after his baptism and he goes up into the wilderness, he's tempted. That that is missing as well. Um, He doesn't call his disciples. In the Gospel of John, the disciples are already there. It's almost like John sort of starts telling the story after Jesus had already started. Not quite. Uh, Almost, almost. Um, Very prominent in the Gospel of Matthew is the is the teaching on the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That teaching is completely missing. And there's a few things like this that are not in the Gospel of John, various stories that you you may know well, that you've maybe grown up with or heard recently. But John actually has some very unique things as well. So um, after chapter 1, John chapter 2, 3, and 4 is all unique to John. So in John chapter 2, you've got the water into wine, his first miracle in Cana. You've got John chapter 3 and that, and that discussion about being born again with Nicodemus. And John chapter 4, the woman at the well. All of these stories very unique and only found in John. And we'll talk about some of the differences um, as, as we go through this series together. Uh, just a few little tidbits I'll leave with you. Um, the story of Lazarus, the raising of Lazarus is unique um, to, to John. Any, anyone know John chapter... 11, very good. It's got the shortest, I wonder why you know, um, the shortest um, verse of the Bible, John chapter 11, verse 35, someone did say it, verse 35, Jesus wept, um, is unique to, to John as well. And um, some other things that you, you probably would know, or many of you have been around church for a while would know, the I am statements. You've heard of the I am statements? Have, have you heard of the I am statements before? Um, found in, in John. And just one last thing here. Something that's really profoundly strong in the Gospel of John is something called the dualisms. So the dualism, dualisms usually mean of how many? Two. So there would be, help me out here, there would be light and the dark, above and below, life and death, truth and error, truth and error, truth and lies. I was wondering what was going to be said there. I thought it would be fun. Um, sight and and blind. And a lot of this imagery we'll find as we go through this series, these imageries will come up again and again and again. And the book of John starts off with this unique sort of poetry at the start of this gospel. And uh, my version reads like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and in that life was the light of all mankind, the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And something that you'll find in ancient texts, as opposed to what we write now in text, is that we even use in today's culture, if you've gone and seen a movie and you want to come and tell your friends about it, what do your friends tell you to do? Be quiet. Don't tell me about it. Or if you're going to say something, you've got to say this. What's the phrase you've got to say before you... Does anyone know? Spoiler alert. I'm going to, I'm going to say something here. If I've seen a late, late speech, if it's like, I think, is eight years? I think eight years is the rule. If it's eight years old, you don't have to say spoiler alert. I don't know if that's familiar to you or not. But in ancient texts, they often give away the ending at the start. Now, if you've grown up in church, you often know the ending before you start reading the Gospel of John. It's like, oh, yeah, I know he died. Oh, he's going to rise again. I don't know if it's going to happen. We know it's going to happen. And he says it here. 
the light came. He was the light of all mankind, the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. The story that I'm telling you, John is saying, is a story that contains darkness, but the light is victorious. And that light was the one whom we experienced. And he starts off with this this poetry, this imagery, this in the beginning. And for those of you that grew up in church, how does the start of the Bible start? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the and he starts the new, this New Testament um, gospel starts in the beginning, was the word. Same imagery that's happening, same imagery. And, and something that is wrapped up in this, in this word beginning in the original language has a little bit more than just the start, but it actually is wrapped up a little bit around the words that we might use the word origin as well. This is the where the things began. It all goes back to this point, to this start. Go back to where there was nothing before there was something. And the Word was with God. Now, I can remember when I was doing my seminary studies and we had to, had to learn Koine Greek or ancient Greek. One of the first words you learn um, in, in Greek is the word logos. And you've probably heard this word before, even in English. It does come up from time to time, this word logos. And all the, all the things are, are wrapped around this word logos to help us understand and, and say all these phrases in Greek as we, as we learnt it. And logos simply does translate as word. But word actually gets used even in English. If I say, I give you my word, what am I really saying? I'm making a promise. I give you my word. So even in that, there's like this essence in this word. What is this word is? This, this, and, and it's wrapped up in this imagery of word, of logos, is about origin, is about thought and reason and even science the inner thought in reason. And they sort of had this connection that the word was the external part that linked the external into the internal. So unlike today, that in philosophy, that you said what your mind was thinking. You weren't deceitful and your word was true. And the outside verbal language was the internal part of what was reflecting what was going on on the inside. And if you think back to even that account in the creation story in, in Genesis chapter 1, where God said, let there be light, the word that is used in Hebrew is the word that is also translated as word. So God's word came out, the Hebrew word there being debar, his debar came out and there was light. And so for the Jews that are reading this, they are seeing this word, in the beginning was the word, the first word. The word that spoke the earth into motion. The earth that brought life to this world. But also in this word is wrapped up things like revelation, God revealing himself. Isaiah 55 says that God's word came forth and they were, they were prosperous. The word of the Lord came to the prophet, came to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. The word of the Lord. Deliverance and judgment was wrapped up into God's word. God, a healing from God. Psalm 107 says that God's word came forth and they were healed. So a lot is wrapped up in this power that is found in the word of God. And when we say the word of God, we often think the Bible, right? But the word of God, this is the surest, this is the most reliable revelation of God. 
reliable word of God, but God's word is not limited to what is in Scripture. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? We cannot contain all about God in Scripture. It is impossible. We cannot write it all down. In fact, even in the book of John, it says we can't write down all of what Jesus did. It would not contain all the books of the world. That's what John says himself. In saying, in this understanding of what this word is, is that if we say to the, to the Jewish thinking and even the Greek philosophers of the time, this logos, this debar, what does word mean? It's deliverance, it's healing, it's salvation, it's prosperity, it's power, it's creation, it's all of these things. And he says, in the beginning was this word, and this word became Jesus. And all of these things, not just the Son of God, God became flesh and dwelt among us, as we get down in verse 14 a little bit later, saying all of these things, the personification of all of these things, the self-expression of creation, of revelation, of salvation, is wrapped up in who we say is Jesus. God's ultimate self-disclosure is the person of his own son. The expression that is found in God's heart is in Jesus. Jesus himself even says, you know, he says statements like, I and the Father are one. He has this intimate connection. He is God. He was with God. And help us understand what is happening here between the word and this, it was God and it is, and it is God and was with God. You actually don't have to go even go back to the original language. We use the same word with. When I say I am, if, if you call me up on the phone and say, hey, where are you? And say, I'm with my wife. It just means I'm physically next to her. And we can be mistaken that when it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, we just go, oh, he was just physically present. But we also use this word in English when you say, hey, are you with me? What does that phrase mean in English? That you understand what I'm going on, that you're with me, that we're on the same page, you're tracking, we are going to the same destination, we are together. It sort of has this imagery of that I am with you, I am for you. We are, we are parallel to each other. And it's got that wrapped up in the original language, which is the same in English as well, that the, the, the word was not just physically present, but also supportive of, in track with, thinking the same thing, going after the same ideals. The Word was with God. The Word was for God. The Word was supportive of all things. Jesus even said, I don't do anything first until I see my Father doing it. He was united 100% with his father, so much united with his father that he wasn't just with God, he was God. The word was God. I am with you. I'm on the same page. I'm supportive. I am there. And let me encourage you this morning that that same promise is for you and for me. God is with you. He is not just physically present with us. He wants the best for you. He's got his eye on you. 
that promise that comes from Jesus when he talks about the sparrow. His eye is on the birds and the lilies of the field in all his splendor, Solomon. But yet he looks after these birds and these flowers so much more. Do I look out for you? I am with you, God says to us. I am for you. So much so that I sent my son to come and die for you. He loves you and he is with you. And it doesn't matter what is going on in your life right now. It doesn't matter if you are with him, he is with you. It doesn't matter if you are for him, he is for you. It doesn't matter if you are struggling right now, you don't know if God is with you or not, whether you sense his presence or not. God's word says, I am with you. It doesn't matter whether you are doing things that God wants you to do or you're doing things that are far away of what a Christ follower would do. God is for you whether you are in his plan or working on what he wants for your life or not. God is with you and God is for you and he follows you wherever you go. Not because he wants to judge you, because he wants to save you. He is with you. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. Jesus himself describes John as the greatest, all, the greatest of all born of a woman. Anyone born at that point, excluding Jesus, he was proclaimed as the greatest. And the greatest one, all he wanted to do was prepare the way, proclaim Jesus, prepare the way. I am not the light. I want to point others to the light. I will testify and witness concerning him. And isn't that a challenge for each of us? That if we have experienced Jesus in our lives, we then have, I don't want to use the word obligation, but we've got, yeah, let's say obligation as a believer in Jesus, an obligation as we respond to him and what he's done in our life to testify of what he has done in our life. And in that frame of mind, in that thought, I want to share a little bit um, a little bit of at least a few years of my life with you this morning. Um, I was born into a Christian home. My, my parents were Adventists. Uh, my, my father became an Adventist. My mum was born into an Adventist home. So in January 22, um, so I'm just expecting a pile of presents just being out there. My, my, my birth, birthday's just gone, so thank you. Just put the table out there. That'd be great. Um, January 22, 1983, do the maths. I'm 30, 30 old. You just pipe down over there, all right? Um, 37, and I was born in the Gippsland in a town called Maui. And every time I travel overseas, got someone else from Maui, every time I travel overseas, I get the passport officer going, Mo, you were born in Mo, because it's spelled M-O-E, but we say it Maui. So born in Maui, um, that was obviously where the hospital was, but we... Um, lived in the town of, I've already forgotten. I was too young to remember. Is there a church, Churchill? Is there a town called Churchill? 
That's where we lived. I, I, I don't even know where I was born because it says it in my passport. How bad is that? Um, so my 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 mum's mum's name is Dawn, and my dad's name is Les, Dawn and Les Peterson, and two older brothers, Matthew and Brendan. So the oldest one is in the back, the youngest, um, the middle one on your left, and there's oh, can't you say aren't cute little me on the there? Yeah. So I'm the youngest of three boys. Um, there's seven years between me and the next, and seven and nine years gap. Born and raised in a Sevy family throughout my childhood. Um, always grew up going to church. It was just my normal thing every week, going to church, um, was heavily involved. My parents were always a part of doing something with young people. Um, and at age four, if you look closely there, can you see my hand all bandaged up? Um, at age four, um, parents are very into pathfinders. We often did a lot of camping, a lot of family camping. And we actually went camping out um, at Hume Weir. And I was helping my mum hang washing on the line. I was standing on a folding stool and I fell off the stool and the hand and the stool closed on me and it took the top of my finger off. And um, they, at the time, I think with the medicine there, the bone actually split this way as well as that way. Um, I don't remember much of what's happening. Um, I am told that I just sort of held my hand up and said, mum, look at my finger. And mum just screamed and she had to go and find the finger on the ground and take it all up to the hospital. The only thing, there's only two things I can remember from this experience. I was crying in the back seat, like I've obviously got a bandage on or wrapped up in tissues or something. I'm crying in the back seat and I must have just been grizzling or something. Not crying, crying, I must have been grizzling. And my dad was telling me to stop grizzling. And I'm like, I'm four, so I'm not like going, dad, my finger's top, I'm allowed to grizzle, like give me a break. But it's like, why... I can still remember my dad telling me to just shh, be quiet. Um, and I do remember going to the hospital and I can still see in my mind them leaving my parents. You know how you're sort of lying in the bed as they're taking off to theatre and you leave your parents behind. I can remember that for some reason. And I remember waking up and my dad was there. That's all I can remember. And so they took the, they actually had to shave, they shaved part of the bone down so they could fit the skin across the top. Um, but had no, I was young enough to not miss it if that makes sense, and it hasn't really held me back. I can still do all the normal things with my hands. So there you go. That's something unique about me. Um, lost it when I was four. Grew up in, as I said, grew up in an um, Adventist home. Um, we were living in Melbourne at the time, but by the time I got to age seven, we moved to Adelaide and basically grew up in Adelaide all the, all the way through um, and still went for the bombers in a, a land that did not support my... Um, support of the bombers. Um, yeah, I can't say there was a lot of eventfulness happening. We, we, I remember we moved around in houses. We almost seemed to be in a different house every year for a, for a while there. Um, and went to Sevy schools all the way through, right through to it. See, on this picture, how Adventist is that picture if you've got keen eyes? It's like you got the, if you don't know, over, over my, on those red and green books, that's the Adventist, the SBA Biblical Commentary. And then on the other side is the Bible Stories it's by John Maxwell, by Maxwell. So, like, it's just hilarious how Adventist that picture is, if you, if you, if you can see it. Um, yeah, so went to, um, I think that was at Croydon School here in, here in Melbourne, um, before we moved to, to Adelaide. Went through, all the way through schooling, all the way through service school until I, I finished up. And... Um, my, my own experience, um, around about the age 12 or so, 12 or 13, 
I made the decision to, to be baptized. It wasn't something my parents pushed on me. It's sort of like I just came home and said, no, that's what I want to do. And so because of that, I think my parents, they weren't even asking, and, and I just sort of responded. I just responded by myself. And so my parents were very supportive of that, and I um, went through the, the process, got, did some Bible studies with the pastor, as the traditional way is, and I got baptized. And there's something that sort of really stuck with me in that time, is that my parents allowed me to walk this path myself. I think they could see um, that I was honest and genuine about it. My other, I didn't have friends that were going to do it. There wasn't like five other friends, and I was just sort of jumping on the bandwagon or anything like that. And I was really, uh, as I look back at that time, I'm really um, appreciative that my parents allowed me to walk um, that journey, journey myself. And, um, and this is the question that actually comes up a lot in church, maybe even come up for, for me as a pastor, is was that too young to be baptized? And that's always an odd question because all, often age is, has nothing to do with it. It has to do whether you've experienced Jesus as your Lord and Savior or not. That's the main question. And the other question that sort of follows up with that is, do you think they're ready? Parents will ask, or do you think they want to get baptized? Are they ready? My answer is always the same. There is no such thing as ready. Asking a question about whether we are ready to be baptized can, follow me now, can actually show an incomplete picture of the gospel. You do not become ready to receive Jesus. You do not become ready to follow Jesus. It is on the road with Jesus that you are made ready. He makes you ready. He, we, in church circles, we call this sanctification. There is no readiness for justification. It is just receiving. That's what we believe. That's what we believe as Christians. That's what we believe as Protestants. That's what we believe as Adventists. You receive salvation by simply opening up and receiving. Not taking, receiving this gift that is freely given to us. And I was, and, um, and being baptized then, I probably didn't stick with church the way that God probably wanted me to. I probably didn't stick with church the way that my parents wanted me to. But something that I believe in my heart that it was an anchor for me as I became a teenager, was making decisions for myself. So if you are a teenager or you have teenagers or, God bless you if your kids are going to become teenagers soon, my prayers are with you. Um, this is a decision. There is a, there is a time in kids' life where they have to take your faith and it has to be their own. And I was allowed to have make that faith my own. And I didn't get it right. I stuffed up. I wasn't always present in church. I did some things that I'm not proud of, but I was glad that I had that anchor. And something that is really, really close to my heart um, is that this anchor paved a way for me to receive Jesus in a more powerful way later in life. And now it's a bit of a silly story, but I, I really um, feel compelled to share it with you. Um, that um, a little bit later when I was probably 18 or 19, I was going out um, with a, a girl at the time and she was not in, she was not a, not in church. Um, she wasn't against church. I think she had some poor experience. She went to a Christian school, and um, I was not in Pathfinders at the time. That was, uh, that, I was not that age. They was dorking me through all the way through school. And um, after I, I finished school, I was going out with this girl, and um, 
in the end, it didn't, it didn't work out, um, and she dumped me, and we all go, oh, thank you, there you go. Um, there was like about three seconds there. Thank you for your support. Um, and uh, for whoever, if you've ever been through that process before, um, there's nothing anyone else can do. You just got to wait it out, right? And I still remember um, I was sitting in church, and I have no idea what the speaker said that day, and the final hymn, final song, final hymn came along, and it's, um, it's really, really stuck with me. This will be a good test. Hymn 499. Now, I only know, that's the only hymn I know. Well, a friend we have in Jesus. Aren't we glad our worship leader knows that? It's the only hymn number I know, I think. Um, 499, and that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, sung. And I sat in the back seat and I just bawled my eyes out. And it was in that moment that I had, I had learned who Jesus was. I knew who he was. I knew the books of the Bible. I knew the Ten Commandments. I knew what days of the uh, what days creation happened on. I knew all. The, I could do all the Bible quizzes and everything. But in that moment, he became not just God Creator, but he became Jesus, my friend. He was my friend. He was there through whatever life was going on, and that is where things changed for me. That Jesus became real. Jesus became flesh in my life. Jesus became flesh in my life. And the words that are found in, in, in Romans 10 um, have found a, a very special place for me in my heart. And if you don't know them, they go like this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. And I love this two-pronged approach that Paul writes here, that by believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. It is that testimony. It is by receiving Jesus, by accepting him as your personal friend and saviour, and confessing it to those around you. Sharing your testimony, sharing your witness, with other people. Anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentiles are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call on him. For anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I can encourage you, even if you have not made that decision in your life yet, that is the only step that is required to receive Jesus. Call on his name and you will be saved. And an immediate expression of that is to confess. Confess with your mouth. I'll share a little bit of my story um, a little bit later on in, um, in, a, in another installment um, in a couple of weeks. But that's just a little piece of, of me up until about the 18 mark. And it's not, a, it's not a great story. It doesn't have all the twists and turns. I didn't go way off the rails or anything like that. But something I really want to encourage you this morning is that everyone has got a story to share. Everyone has got a testimony to give. And if Jesus is in your testimony, you are just telling the story of Jesus. And if you're telling the story of Jesus, you are telling a powerful, powerful story. Jesus was made real in my life, and I believe he can be made real in your life too. Verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, 
the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. It was in that moment that God became real to me. It was in that moment that I experienced Jesus and he became real. He became flesh. So my challenge for you this morning, will you allow Jesus to be made flesh in your life, to become a real and powerful force, to accept him, to receive him as your saviour and allow him to use you as a powerful witness to those around you? That's my challenge for you this morning. Dear Father, we just are in awe and thank you for sending your son to this world um, for us. The perfect expression of your salvation, perfect expression of your healing and protection in our lives. This word, this Jesus, everything about you wrapped up in human form so that we could get to know you in a more powerful way. Thank you for sending, uh, sending him to us. We pray that we can be more and more like him as we have received him. And may you just soften our hearts that you can change us from the inside out to be more and more like this word that was made flesh, that became real. Make Jesus more and more real in our lives today. May the Spirit move us and guide us and encourage us to receive Jesus and make him real, make him flesh in our lives today, that we may have a story to tell a story to share, a testimony to give, a story that is ultimately about you and your son, Jesus. We thank you for all of this, and in Jesus' name, and we all said, amen. Amen.